Now, I, I want you to notice something here, Janet, and uh, those who are listening. We feel what we feel. This is something I'm not as well known for, but I, I do say it <laughs> fairly regularly. Our emotional state of being, we feel what we feel because we do what we do in our behavior, because we treasure, worship, desire what we do in our hearts. And why do we treasure what's in our hearts? Because we're already deceived and doubted. I don't just need to feel better. I need the truth. And ultimately, that will make me better. I just want to make it as totally simple and no-brainer as possible for ladies to see that the Bible is really applicable to their everyday life. When they understand theology, the application flows out of it quickly with joy. It is a journey, but even the journey itself is joyful. When I'm doing it, holding the hand of my Savior and trusting Him all along the way. This is the Joyful Journey Podcast a podcast to inspire and equip women to passionately pursue beautiful biblical truth on their journey as women of God. When you choose truth, you're choosing joy. Well, welcome back once again. I'm Janet, and I'm so excited for a special guest today. I am completely biased, but he's my favorite. (laughs) My husband Brent's joining us today. Say hi, honey. Hey, Janet. (laughs) I asked him to come and share a concept that has been incredibly helpful to me, and I am thrilled you're going to get to hear about it, too. I know that many of you might not have heard him speak before, but if you have, you kind of know that he's known for saying, we do what we do because we want what we want. And in our show notes, we're going to link a three-part video series about that called The Heart of Change. But today, what we want to talk about is, assuming that that's true, why do we want what we want? And how do we change that? I know in the past when I've gotten to see you teach this, you've used a diagram that helps people understand where you're going. Yes. So in this format, we're going to have to do something a little different. Well, because I care about our listeners, not only am I looking at a diagram because I get to see it, we have put in your show notes a diagram titled Changing What You Treasure. You can pause right now and get that diagram if it'll help you follow along or at least know that it's there. And at any point, you can go back and download that. I think that that'll be a help to you as Brent teaches us how do we change what we treasure. Yeah, you had mentioned that I was getting known for the phrase, we do what we do because we want what we want. And recently, I had a friend said, well, I just heard a pastor quote you for saying we do what we do because we want what we want. You're famous. Yeah. (laughs) And um, I said, well, he's not quoting me. He's quoting the Bible. So I actually don't know if I got that phrase from somewhere or, but what do we have that we have not actually received from somebody else? There's nothing original with us. And I can remember when I began to learn the heart truths that it was through people like Paul Tripp and David Pallison who would come to the Faith Biblical Counseling Training Conference and teach. And I listened under their ministry And that's where I began to understand more and more about the heart. And that began to revolutionize my life, as it apparently has done with yours. No kidding. Absolutely. As well. And as you mentioned, the teaching that I have done on that, there's a video at faithlafayette.org slash heart. There's a three-part series, and that's like... I don't know, 16 years old. Oh, honey, you don't look any different. (laughs) Thank you. You're my favorite (laughs) wife. So when I began to understand that 
you know, I can ask the question, we do what we do because we want what we want. But then that kind of begs another question here. Well, Brent, why do we want what we want so intensely or so badly? And I have to tell you, that was huge for me. When you first started teaching this, it was like, oh, I get that. I get that I do what I do because I want what I want. And it was a few years of being incredibly frustrated that I could not figure out how to change what I wanted, even when I knew that what I wanted wasn't best. Yes. And let me again say, I want to give credit to whom credit is due. When I was in seminary, and I wasn't making these connections at this moment in time, but there was one professor, Dr. Richard Averbeck, that began to describe something that was going on in Genesis chapter 3, and he provided the framework for which I'm going to talk to you Mm. about right now. So let's kind of dive into this for just a moment. Why do we want what we want so badly? What's the treasures of our heart? And the passage that I'm going to today is going to be Genesis chapter 3. And let me just start off by looking at verse 6 here. When the woman, Eve, saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So right there, right there, desirable to make one wise. There are the desires of the Mm. heart. That's what she's treasuring right there. So she does what she does in the next phrase. She took from his fruit and ate. So her behavior came from her desires. But something has happened with Eve at this moment in time. Her treasure changed. What she was living for changed right at that moment. Mm. So this passage will begin to help us to understand what's going on before our treasure changes from God to something else. And let me just rehearse for just a moment that we all treasure something. We're all living for something. We all have something that we find satisfaction in, that we're chasing after. And if it's not God, it will be something else in this world. So the earthly pleasures and treasures. Blaise Pascal said something like this. I'm not going to quote it exactly, but we have a God-sized hole in our heart. And if it's not filled with God, we will be chasing after something else. And those things, because they're not God, will never, ever fulfill us. And would you agree that that is not just for unbelievers? Absolutely. God does not fill our heart immediately because we're believers. No, it's a process of progressive sanctification that for the rest of my life, I will be chasing after something, and I should be learning that my satisfaction and my desire, my treasure ultimately is God. One verse that comes to my mind is Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. That's a verse that indicates that at a point in time, this psalmist treasured God more than anything else. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean he did all of his life, but how do we get to a point where our ultimate treasure is the Lord, and that's in a growing fashion? Or Psalm 73, 25, when it says, besides you, O God, I desire nothing else on earth. I find myself and you know this, Janet, you live with me, and I <laughs> long for the praise of man. I, no long, I long for ease and comfort. <laughs> but over the course of the years you've known me, and over the course of our marriage, and you and I are both growing in desiring God more than anything else, and we're coming alongside each other and pointing one another toward God being the desire of our heart. So 
In Genesis 3, 6, Eve's desire, her treasure, changed. And so the question becomes, how did that happen? Yes, because she was walking with God. I mean, she had seen God and treasured God, so why would that change? Yes, and Genesis 3 actually gives us the answer for that. Now, you made an interesting comment. She was walking with God. That's all that she and Adam knew at that point in time in Genesis 3. I'm going to read the passage, Genesis 3, 1 through 11, here in just a moment. And uh, before we do, I want to give you some context here. And this context is becoming more and more well-known with the um, emphasis on biblical theology these days and developing themes that run throughout the Scriptures. But Adam and Eve were in something that I'm going to call a paradise sanctuary. Hmm. So when sanctuary comes to your mind, Janet, what comes to your mind when I say sanctuary? Think of a place where animals are not allowed to be hurt. They're safe. Okay, they're safe, and (laughs) (laughs) animals are not allowed to be hurt, and somebody else is not allowed to be hurt, and that would be us, Adam and Eve. (laughs) What else do you think of? I think of growing up where we went to church was called a sanctuary. Yes, growing up, possibly in the old days, the church house was called God's house and called a sanctuary, Mm -hmm. and that terminology probably came from the Old Testament temple sanctuary. And I'm using that terminology also with the Garden of Eden. And let me explain why there is a parallel between the Old Testament tabernacle sanctuary of God, where you mentioned that God was walking with Eve, or Eve was walking with God. Mm -hmm. And the tabernacle sanctuary, there's parallels there with the Garden of Eden. So let me kind of trace those real quickly before we get into answering the question of why do we want what we want so badly. So here are the parallels in the tabernacle sanctuary and the Garden of Eden. So you mentioned that Eve was walking with God, and uh, that was at Genesis 3.8. And in Leviticus 26.11, God describes the tabernacle as a place where he would dwell with his people, Mm. and he would walk among his people. Also, do you remember when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, what was placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden to guard the path into the Garden of Eden? It's angels, cherubim. That's right. So the cherubim were placed there, and cherubim always hover around God. You think about mm. some Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the cherubim were there surrounding God. Now, in Exodus 26, when God commands Israel to make the tabernacle with curtains, those curtains were embroidered with cherubim all around the tabernacle. Mm. Here's what we're seeing. The tabernacle, God walking with his people with the cherubim around God's dwelling place, is beginning to echo Eden. Now, another parallel there is, do you remember what's in the center of the Garden of Eden? A tree. A tree. <laughs> thought it was a trick question. No, no it's trick questions tree. here. So it was a tree. And in Exodus chapter 25, God commands Moses to make a lampstand, and it's described in terms of branches and bulbs and cups shaped like almond blossoms. So the menorah was indicative of a tree. And so all of these things 
when in Exodus where God was beginning to reestablish his dwelling place with the children of Israel, what that was saying is, I want to recreate a taste of Eden with my people, because God wants to dwell with his people. Eden was that first sanctuary of God with God dwelling with his people. Now, you mentioned something about a sanctuary, and one of the characteristics was a place of safety. Yes. Anything else you think of when we think of a sanctuary? Well, I would say because it's a place of safety, it would certainly be encouraging life. Absolutely. And that's what the tree of life that we just talked about represents. There was no death in the Mm. garden sanctuary of Eden. Also, sanctuary in the Genesis chapter 2, and again, we're setting up the context before Genesis chapter 3, innocence was in the Garden of Eden. There was no sin. Mm. And the word innocent in Genesis chapter 2 is not used, but it's pictured there. Adam and Eve are pictured as in their childlike innocence. Do you have any thoughts on exactly how that would be conveyed in Genesis chapter 2? Well, when you think about just the ability to be with each other and to not even have any clothes on, and they're not even concerned about that. It's like they don't even have any concept. Right. So, Janet, we had kids when we were young. So (laughs) who do you know that runs around (laughs) naked and not ashamed? And don't say me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, back then, it was our two- and three-year-old. Josh and Karis had no sense of modesty in that respect. Right, because there was nothing to hide. They didn't know that there was supposed to be something covering them. Yes. And so Adam and Eve are pictured in childlike innocence here, naked and not ashamed. There is nothing to cover. Let me mention one more characteristic of the sanctuary, intimacy. So in the paradise garden sanctuary of Eden, there was intimacy between God and man. Hmm. So chapter 1, God is pictured as this transcendent God who speaks and things happen. In chapter 2, God is pictured as this God who reaches down with his hands and forms Adam out of the dust of the ground and talks with Adam. So he's intimately involved. So there's intimacy between God and his creation. And there's intimacy between husband and wife as well. Same imagery. They were naked and not ashamed. There was nothing between them, not even an article of clothing. So intimacy, so nothing to hide. They were laid bare before God. If God is pictured in the Old Testament as the God who dwells in unapproachable light, Adam and Eve could stand there without anything between them and God. That's hard for me to even imagine, to just think of that level of transparency. My mind immediately says, fearful, and they weren't. And that's right, because they were innocent, there was life there, and there was a level of intimacy. And ultimately, the Garden of Eden, Eden means delight or delightful. So they were in a place where dwelling with God, and it was a delightful place. Mm. And that's ultimately what, so the beginning of the Bible starts with a garden, paradise, and the end of the Bible ends with God taking his people back to, it's not just a garden, but it's a garden city now filled with all kinds of people. Eden 2.0. Eden 2.0. It's not just a return to Eden, but it's a better Eden now with us all fully knowing the character of God as well, that he's full of grace and mercy because... Mm. 
well, what happens in Genesis chapter 3. So in Genesis chapter 3, we get to see how Eve's treasure changed, and all of what I just described about the paradise sanctuary is going to be reversed. So the opposite of innocence is guilt. guilt. The opposite of intimacy, closeness between us and God and us and another person or us and our spouse. Distance, alienation. Separation. So, yes, and you're going to see that in Genesis 3. And the easy one here is the opposite of life is death. death. Yeah. So as we study Genesis 3 from this particular angle about the dynamic of human behavior and the dynamic of the heart, so we're going to see basically seven steps here. That's not a number I made up here for this. It just seems to fall in that. <laughs> I know that's a unique number in Scripture. I didn't uh, seek to make seven, but I've got seven <laughs> categories here, and they're on your show notes as far as those categories that we will fill in. And in the process, we're going to learn why do we want what we want so intensely. Yes. Okay, so let me start in Genesis 3, and I'm going to read for us Genesis chapter 3. And um, I may make some comments on the way here, and then we'll flesh out the seven steps of the dynamic of human behavior in which we will find why do we treasure what we treasure so much. Verse 1, chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. I'm going to stop right there for just a moment. When the serpent comes in and begins to speak with Eve, when Eve responds, would you say that at least Eve has God in her mind at that moment in time? Yeah, she says, here's what God has said. So she's thinking about God. Okay. And, and I would agree with that. And we have to determine exactly what, you know, she means by the last phrase, don't even touch it. Did she add to God's word or whatever? That's really not the point I'm trying to make right here. There's all kinds of speculation about exactly the significance of that or not. But at least we could say at this moment in time, in the brevity of her walking with God, she at least has God's words on her mind. Yes. Something changes. The serpent said to the woman, You surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable, there's our heart's desire right there, to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, And he ate. So in verse 6, is Eve's mind on God? There's no indication that she was thinking about him at all. What's right in front of her face? What is the only thing that she can see? A fruit that looks really good. In the serpent's temptation here, the serpent is placing in front of her something other than God in his ways. And that is in front of her face right now. And that's all that she sees. Something has changed, and that has become desirable to her. And the moment it did, then she acted upon that in her behavior. We do what we do because we want what we want. She took from the fruit and ate, and she gave also her husband with her, and he ate. 
Verse 7, and then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked. Now there was something here that they had to cover, Mm. a blight on them. There was something dark in them that they had to cover before the God of unapproachable light. So they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now, if you're following along in the show notes here, there's a first box there, a first blank there. So let me begin to tease this out. So I made the point that at least in Eve's mind, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, God was still in Eve's mind. Yes. But in Genesis 3, 6, the only thing that was in front of her face was the fruit. Now, much, much theological ink has been spilt over exactly how could a good creation go bad, and the Bible actually gives an answer to that. It may not fully satisfy us, but how is it possible that a good creation went downhill? So the Bible gives the answer to that. So when Eve actually says, the serpent deceived me, Eve was not lying. Yeah. So the first step or the first dynamic of the human heart that leads us down the path of death, so the dynamic of the heart here is deceit. Okay, so something external to Adam and Eve had to come in and begin to weave deceit in their minds. So, Janet, what would you—you've heard me teach this before. Um, what would you say is the essence of deception? Well, when I think—okay, specifically here, God, in her mind up to this point, was good, and they walked with him, and they followed him. But now, deception, Satan is saying there's something better. Yes. So— The way that I've captured this in my own mind that helps me is the essence of deception is that there is another way other than God's. Yes. Another way other than God in his ways. So it doesn't matter what it is. So God is God, and he prescribes for us what is best and good for us. And when something comes in and says, there's another way for us other than God in his ways to satisfy us or make us happy, then that is deception. Okay, so there's another way other than God's. And we can see this in the world all the time. Just one example. When you and I were serving in college ministry, the thing that college students struggled with is uh, just desiring another way other than God's in regard to sex and intimacy. Yes. And the world screams out another way other than God's ways. And that it's a better way than God's way and far more satisfying than God's way. Yes, if you just do it this way, why wait for sex and marriage and a covenant relationship with your spouse? Why wait? Because there's thrills to be had right now and intimacy to be had right now, and there's little consequences. And I'll miss out. And you'll miss out. 
So the essence of deceit is that there's another way other than God's. Okay, so that has to be present for desires to begin to change. So I'm, I'm going to flesh that out. Now, when Satan also said this, surely you will not die. What do you think the Satan was trying to get Eve to do at that moment in time? Begin to wonder, is God telling me the truth? Exactly. So Satan actually uses the exact same phrase that God used to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 when God said, um, you will die. And Satan just adds, no, you will not. But it's, it's in the Hebrew, it's the exact same phrase, except with a negation on it. So the serpent is here instigating doubt in Eve. Okay, so deceit is present, that there's another way other than God's. And these childlike creatures, Adam and Eve, starting with Eve, had only known one way. And now deceit is in play here. And now they have two ways. Mm. And Satan begins to cast doubt on the other way. So deceit and doubt are present. So now that I have a choice, maybe there's a way that's better, not just another way, but a way that's better than God's if I doubt his heart. That's right. Now, what do you think Eve was doubting? One thing, or possibly doubting, one thing is clear in the text, another thing is an implication of the text. I think she was doubting that they would die. Yes, and that's always part of deceit, that another way other than God's will not have consequences for me, when God specifically stated that they would die. Now, I want you to—this is something also that came to me about four years ago when I was meditating on this— there was only one thing that Adam and Eve had to take by faith in the Garden of Eden. There was only one thing, and that was God's command, God's word, that if you eat this, you will die. Adam and Eve had never seen death before. Mm. So they had never seen an animal die. They had never seen a loved one die. They had never seen an insect die. All they knew was life. So when God said, dying, you will die, emphatically, they had to take that by faith. That was the only thing that they had to take by faith. They saw God. So their faith in God was sight. The only thing they had to take by faith was God's word about the consequences, and Satan cast doubt on that. It gives me more compassion for them because I can look at that and go, oh my word, you had everything. Why in the world would you eat? But I look at what they had to take by faith versus what I have to take by faith and how much I doubt the things that I have not seen myself too. Yeah, yeah. So today, death is all around us. We don't have to take by faith death. Correct. What we have to take by faith is life and eternal life and God. Now, so they doubted God's word, but they also doubted something else. Satan coming in and said, if you just eat this fruit, you're going to be like God as if, as if, God was withholding something from them that if they had it, they would be complete and satisfied in life. And there's something more than the delightful Garden of Eden. So if you just had this, you would be complete. And because God didn't give it to you, God is not good. 
Good. And I, that's so powerful to me because I really see that in my own life. It's if I didn't doubt that he was keeping something good from me, I wouldn't so clamor after things he has not given me. Oh, that's right. That's right. So Eve was doubting clearly the word of God. And number two, implication of the scripture, she was doubting God's goodness. Yeah. Now let's kind of summarize all of this. Deceit, there's another way that will be better for me other than God. And doubt, doubting God's word of what is right, what is satisfying about who he is, and I'm doubting his goodness. All of that has to be in play. And then the third step in the dynamic of the heart here is desire. So the moment deceit and doubt were in play in Eve's mind, Genesis 3, 6, all that she could see was the fruit and what that represented for her to be like God. That would be satisfying. That would make her whole. So there is her treasure right there. So I ask you, and asking the audience here, why do we want what we want so badly? The answer to that is this, because I'm already deceived and doubting. Mm, true. So I believe that there's another way other than God's, and I'm doubting God's word, and I'm doubting his goodness. And when all of that is present in me, it's no wonder I desire the treasures and pleasures of this earth. Because I believe there's another way for satisfaction. And I'm doubting what God says, that these things won't. Okay, So yep. the desires of my heart. So we started this podcast here with basically the question, but why do I want what I want so badly? And we've answered it now. Now I'm going to flesh this out just a little bit more here. But we've answered it in the sense of because I'm deceived and I'm doubting. Yes. And I'm doubting God's word and I'm doubting his goodness. That's always present. That will inform you going after the treasures and pleasures of this earth. Okay? Yes. Now, so that was the third step, desire. The fourth step in your show notes, and I'll just uh, hit these others fairly quickly, and then we'll apply all of this. After Eve desired the fruit, well, we know what happens. This corresponds to the teaching that I've done at faithlafayette.org slash heart, the heart of change. I do what I do in my behavior because I want what I want. So what comes after desire? Well, my behavior. And she took from the fruit and she ate. So my behavior comes from the desires in my heart. And like a good pastor, they're all D's. So this one is disobedience. <laughs> this one is disobedience. So if you're following in the show notes, number one is deceit. Number two is doubt. Number three is desire. Number four is disobedience. And at the moment Adam and Eve disobeyed, they felt something that they never felt before. Mm. Now, the text doesn't say this, but because of their actions afterwards, we know they felt shame. Or, yes, yes because I'm alliterating these, let's get a good word for shame here. A D word is, let's call it distress. Okay? <laughs> they felt shame. They felt the product of their guilty state. For the first time. For the first time. Adam and Eve had never known this kind of a feeling before. Again, they're walking in innocence. They're walking with a God of unapproachable light without any kind of need of covering. So they feel shame 
They feel bad, the product of their guilty state. Now, I, I want you to notice something here, Janet, and uh, those who are listening. We feel what we feel. This is something I'm not as well known for, but I, I do say it <laughs> fairly regularly. Our emotional state of being, we feel what we feel because we do what we do in our behavior, because we treasure, worship, desire what we do in our hearts. And why do we treasure what's in our hearts? Because we're already deceived and doubting. Yes. So we feel what we feel because we do what we do because we want what we want. And then because Adam and Eve felt this shame or distress, then they did something. Now they have a blight in them. Now they have darkness in them. And here is God walking among them. And the God of unapproachable light comes, and now they're stained with darkness. So what do they do? They run and hide and cover themselves with fig leaves. Yeah. When I teach this in a lecture setting, their attempts to cover themselves are relatively humorous. I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve put on fig leaves and they go into the trees. What are they trying to make like? <laughs> camouflage. <laughs> a camouflage, a tree. And from the God who knows the difference between them and the trees, God knows. But uh, the dynamic here is this, that now there's a stain in them and they cannot stand before the God of unapproachable light. So in their childlike state, they are trying to figure out a way to adjudicate or cover or assuage their guilt. Mm. And so number six, the last step there in the dynamic of the heart is they cover themselves or they try to disguise themselves for the D word. Today, you know, we might look at them and say, well, that seems totally inadequate, and it was. But our ways of trying to cover our own shame and guilt are not any more sophisticated today than fig mm -hmm. leaves. So what are you thinking about how do we tend to cover ourselves, our shame and our guilt, as we understand that we cannot stand before the God of unapproachable light? I think some of it is not taking responsibility for it because I can't even deal with thinking that that's true of me. So it's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault, either my parents' fault or it's the way I was just made. Somehow it's not my fault. Yeah, and that's what Adam and Eve did. Eve said, well, it's a serpent. And then Adam said, it's the woman that you gave me. And right there you see the breakdown of the intimacy that they mm. enjoyed. So before... Adam was saying of Eve, this one, this one is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. Now Adam is saying, that one, and pointing the figure right there. Yeah. Right there is the breakdown of the intimacy because of the brokenness of Adam and Eve. So they try to cover their shame, and their attempts are insufficient. So blame shifting masking it. Sometimes trying to be really good. I will make up for it. For church folks and religious folks in particular, trying to do penance, trying to cover myself with my own righteous good deeds. Yes. And the childlike creatures here, Adam and Eve, their only response should have been, Lord, have mercy on me because I don't know what to do with mm. this guilty state. And God eventually will cover their shame of their nakedness with animal skins as a symbol for the coming covering that they will enjoy. So the last step here, number seven, is simply death. All of this leads to death. So in your show notes, if you're taking notes, deceit, doubt, desire, disobedience, distress, and disguise, and it all leads to death. 
So we've answered the question now. Why do I treasure what I treasure so intensely? Because I'm already deceived and doubting. Now, I know that's pretty depressing, right? Are you encouraged so far? <laughs> <laughs> Let's not stop here, okay? We're not stopping there. So I'm an engineer, and I like to think very sequentially and, and logically. If we just reverse this, we can find the answers. So let's look at the path of life. Janet, what would you say is the opposite of deceit? What is true, the truth. Yes, what is true. So on your show notes as well, the first path of life there, the first blank is truth. The opposite of deceit is truth. And this one's pretty easy. The opposite of um, doubt. What is that? Be to believe, to trust. And that's right. Trusting in God and his ways that they are best. And then number three, that would generate in us the right desire. If the truth is that God and his ways are best, and I trust that, what do I treasure? I want him and his ways. I want him and his ways. So truth and trust bring forth the desire and the treasure of God. And then I, I've dropped the alliteration here because um, it just doesn't fit anymore. But number four, after I treasure God in my heart, then what's going to happen? I'm going to want to walk in his way, so I will be obedient. Yeah. And then after as I'm walking in his ways in obedience, then I'm going to find joy and peace, which is what people are longing for. I feel what I feel because I do what I do, because I treasure what I treasure in my heart. And then the opposite of covering or disguising myself, now I can walk in the light of Christ. He has covered my sin. Now, I love that, though. The world would say the answer that we're supposed to come to, they don't, of course, go with any of the rest of these, but you just have to be yourself, be transparent, be yourself. But what I see is we just need a better covering now. And yes, we still have to have a covering because we're still sinners. And there is, I, I love the way that the scripture picks up this theme. We are standing before God naked no matter what we try to do. And it's shameful because we're standing before God in the shame of our nakedness, meaning that we are blighted with sin, we are dark, we are polluted, and we can't stand before the God of unapproachable light. But the scripture picks up that theme of a covering that we need for the shame of our nakedness. And let me give you one verse on that, or maybe two. You know, when was the day that you were probably best dressed ever, Janet? <laughs> well, I hope you're going to say my wedding day. Yes, I'm not going to say your <laughs> funeral. So um, it was your wedding day. And that's true of all of us. And when the scriptures begin to reach for a metaphor for the garments of our salvation, they compare them to our wedding day. In Isaiah 61.10, here's what Isaiah says. I will rejoice greatly in my Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with robes of righteousness. Now listen to this. Here is the metaphor. Imagine the day you'll be the best dressed as a bridegroom decks himself out with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. And we now know that's to be the righteousness of Christ. Second um, Corinthians 5, 2, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Second Corinthians 5, 21. Did I say that wrong? Yes, I said that wrong. So it's okay. Second Corinthians 5, 21. Yep. 
so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a beautiful imagery right there. So now we can stand before God in Christ's righteousness that covers the shame of our nakedness. So that's the dynamic that's pictured there, both negatively and positively. So let me just summarize here. Why do we want what we want so badly? We can answer that question now, right? Yes, because I'm already deceived and doubting. So then when we ask the question of ourselves, can I change my desires? How does that happen? Can I change what I want? What would you say? Well, for years I was trying and I couldn't. So I can't directly just say stop wanting. But now that I know what's informing what I want, I can change. I can grow to not be deceived. Yes. So let's look at the process one more time. The path of life, truth, trust, treasure, obedience, joy, peace, walking transparently in Christ's righteousness. Whether we're talking about ourselves or discipling others or parenting our kids, you know, we need to ask the question, what step can we actually influence though in our own hearts and in those other hearts. Like, for example, we've raised now two kids, Janet, so can we make them have joy and peace? (laughs) No, and I've tried. (laughs) Yes, we have. (laughs) Can we make them be obedient? Not really. No, not at all. Can we make them love God, the treasure of our heart? Can we make them treasure God? No. How about this? Can we make them trust God? No. So the only thing that's left for us is, can we impart truth? And the answer is... Yes. And we can impart it in such a way that we're passionate about it because we live it and we know it. So out of all of these steps here, the only step that we can actually impact and influence is the first one as we begin to minister truth to those that we're discipling, parenting, counseling, and we do it in such a way where we adorn the truth in a passionate way. I love that because when you're adorning it, you're showing by if I'm living it and they see joy and peace, then it helps them to not doubt. Right. They can see that God's way is better. They're hearing the truth and they're seeing its effect, at least in somebody else's life. Right, right. Now, out of those steps, truth, trust, treasure, and obedience, joy, peace, and then transparently walking in Christ, which step do we tend to harp on the most? And we did it too, sometimes, and many times more than I wanted to, more than I should have. But which step do we harp on the most as parents? Make them eat their green beans. How do I get them to not hit their sister? How do I get them to obey? Yes, will you just eat that? Yes, will you just do this? So that's step number four of the entire process. Yeah. And we're missing the first one about trying to get to their hearts by elevating a better truthful way about God and his delightful ways. Which means I have to learn where they're deceived. I have to know enough to know about where the deception is causing them to want the wrong thing so that then I know what truth to bring to bear to help them to see that God's way is the only way of life. Yeah. So let's talk about some practical applications of this at this moment in time. And how do I begin to change what I want? The answer is the deceit of my mind has to be dispelled, and then I have to believe the truth and trust God. And 
And that creates a desire in me. And Thomas Chalmers, he was a Puritan, and he says this, Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world, and that would be Christ. So I have to, in my own mind, if I'm going to want to please God, delight in him, I'm going to have to see that Christ and God and his ways are better than anything else. And when I see that, then my desire will be for him. Thomas Chalmers goes on to say that the love of the world cannot be expunged by a mere demonstration of the world's worthlessness, but may it not be supplanted by the love of that which is more worthy than itself. The only way to dispossess it of an old affection, and here's what he's known for, is by the expulsive power of a new affection, something greater that will fill up that vacuum in the heart, believing the truth about God and his ways are better, and um, then I will want something different. So uh, how do we apply this, Janet? So one of the things I'm thinking about is I'm going to have to understand, first in my own mind, where I'm deceived and where I'm doubting. And how am I going to figure that out? Because quite frankly, if I'm already deceived, I think I'm right. Right. So how am I going to figure that out? Some things that I think we would both recommend, some resources that really can help you learn your heart, in addition to the series that will be in our show notes, the video series that Brent has that's been very helpful to me, a book by Brad Bigney, Gospel Treason, a book by Tim Keller, Counterfeit Gods. Both are just going to help you begin to unravel what am I treasuring that's not God? Right. And where am I deceived? And one exercise that I have used a lot in counseling, but it's not for the faint of heart, but it is very revealing. If you want to understand what you're treasuring so that then you can compare it to truth and see if you're deceived, I would encourage you to take probably no more than two days because it will be maybe very depressing. And whenever you're not busy, write out what you're thinking when you don't have to think about something else. Mm. What are you thinking about when you wake up? What are you thinking about as you're making your bed and brushing your teeth? I don't have to really think hard in those moments. So what are you thinking about instead when you're driving somewhere, when you're preparing meals, when you're taking your dog out? If you just start writing down, here's what was running through my head. Here's what I was thinking about. You're going to learn what you treasure. And if it wasn't the same thing God says we should treasure, you're learning where you're deceived because you believe that's what will make you most satisfied. Now I know what truths I need to counteract that. So for example, if I'm looking at those moments where I'm just letting my mind and I'm not doing a task and I'm thinking more about, hey, when is the next time I get to relax or the next time I get to be entertained or the next time I don't have to work as hard as I am now? Or why do I have to work so hard? And my, I think I work harder than everybody else. And why is this person or my boss doing this and I don't like it? So I'm believing that the path of pleasure is a better way than God's path of submission and walking in his ways. Yes. Or for me, I would say, I can't believe how much people expect me to do. Whatever I do, they just ask for more. I stay late and people still don't appreciate what I do. Nobody even notices me. Yesterday, when I said that to her, oh my word, I bet she's upset with me for what I said. And I replay conversations in my head. Maybe I just need to go out of my way. I'm going to do something really nice for people today. Then they'll all like me. And it's exhausting. Yeah. And what am I thinking? If I just have the praise of others and their appreciation, that will satisfy me. Yeah. And what does God say? How about knowing 
that instead of I need entertainment, I need pleasure, I need the praise of man, how about knowing that there's a God who knows exactly what's best for my soul, he already knows me and all the reasons that there are not to praise me, and he loves me anyway. And that would be the truth I need to meditate on that's better than the praise of man. Yeah, and, and God seeing right through the coverings that we tend to have. Yes. Our own self-righteousness, and he, he knows the shame of our nakedness, and yet he loves us anyway. Meditating on that, and, and let me bring something to bear here on this discussion. You know, I often ask this when I'm teaching this in a lecture format. Where was Christ's clothes on the cross? Oh, they weren't on him. They were fighting over him. Not even a fig leaf on Christ. And the symbolism there is this, that Christ bore the shame of our nakedness. And imagine this. So I mentioned Isaiah 6 earlier where the Lord is high and lifted up and all of the angels, the flying angels around him, covered their eyes. They did not dare to look upon the holy, holy, holy God. But on the cross, Mm. the holy God came down and was stark naked so that he was in front of everybody's eyes. Mm. And why was that? He was bearing the shame of our nakedness so he could clothe us in his righteousness. When I see his love for us, Mm. that helps me to begin to see that entertainment, the pleasures of this world, the pleasures of this world never did carry the shame of my nakedness. Entertainment has never carried the shame of my nakedness and die for me. So how can I chase after them and say they will satisfy me when God has loved me like he has? And when I see that truth and that gospel like that, and I believe it, then I want to treasure him. Yes, if every day is hard, if I don't get a lot of entertainment, if no one appreciates what I do, if nobody notices, compared to what's already been done for me, I can have incredible joy. Yeah, yeah. Any thoughts on helping parents with this truth? You know, that's been an interesting thing. Brent and I get to go and do parenting conferences to try to help other families. And one of the things that I think we definitely learned, maybe later than our children would have preferred that we learn it, but we did eventually. Once we understand our own heart patterns, our yeah. kids are probably going to struggle in a similar way. Yeah. And then, our kids are just like us oh, in I'm many so ways. Sorry. Combination of the good and the bad. <laughs> <laughs> so knowing that, I'm now ready to compassionately help them. What in the world do I have to judge my child for who is deceived in so many of the same ways I am and is looking for the wrong things very similar to me? But if I know how to apply this in my mind, if I know how to change, if I know how to change what I treasure, then I know how to help my child too, and that gives hope. Yes, and like one example of when we were dealing with a child that may just give you a practical way to flesh this out. One of our children, when they were potty trained, well, they were playing with a toy and they did not take care of their bodily functions in a timely way. And that individual waited too long and then all of a sudden... Because that individual wanted to play. Because the delight of the individual's heart was to play with their toys. I mean, who wouldn't want that? (laughs) And believing that um, playing the entertainment of my toy is better than, well, taking care of my responsibilities (laughs) before God. In the bathroom. In the bathroom. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so the child began to, well, it was too late. The child ran to the bathroom, and then as the child was stripping, well, all the pee came out <laughs> all over the floor, not in the place where it's supposed to go. Now, we could scold in that incident. We could spank in that incident. But what do you do to get at the heart there, Janet? So you remember that episode? I do remember that. I do remember that. And thinking, what was the treasure and what was the deceit? The treasure, the most important thing is this toy and the deceit. That's what's going to satisfy and God's way of, I really just need to stop what I'm doing and handle responsibilities first is wrong. So it was how are we going to communicate God's way is better if you do things God's way, life is better. Well, now a two-minute break to go to the bathroom became at least 30 minutes of cleaning the bathroom. And recognize it, you know, four-year-old, three-year-old child cleaning the bathroom. I had another 30 minutes afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) But... Parenting is not efficient. Um, sin doesn't occur on schedules. Yes, we had to clean it up all afterwards again, but why do we do that? Because then hopefully the child is seeing God's way would have been better. Two minutes, come back, play with stuff. Yeah. But work first, then play. But when I idolize my way, I don't get more pleasure. I actually get the opposite. Yeah. So let me just kind of summarize the teaching for this podcast. How do I begin to desire God and nothing else on this earth? How do I pant after God the way the deer pants after the waters? Ultimately, I have to see that he's better than anything else. So believing the truth of the scriptures and whatever's going to help me to do that and seeing the truth of the scriptures, seeing him, and seeing his beauty and his goodness. And remember, doubt is always doubting the goodness of God, but seeing the goodness of God as ultimately manifested in the gospel and believing that, and then how could I want anything else? And that's a lifetime process where I, over the course of my life, as I root out the deceit and the doubts, I begin to treasure God more and more over the course of my life. When I get to the point where I can say, Besides you, God, I desire nothing else on this earth. And that's our prayer, that we would all be on that journey to get there. Yeah, so thank you. As we are closing, I want to mention some resources, something we didn't really talk about, but I think is in the background of all of this. What's going to help me as I begin to see my heart and what's going to help me treasure Christ? A couple of books that have really helped us to understand the heart of Christ. One is Gospel Primer. We've mentioned this in other episodes. We will continue to. Because especially if you're going to take some time to look at your heart and be possibly overwhelmed and discouraged at what's actually in your heart, here's what we need to remember. God already knows that. You're the only one learning it right now. And his heart for you is what you read about in the gospel. Yes. Another book that has um, just come out, Gentle and Lowly, this year by Dane Ortland, Seeing the Heart of Our Savior for Those Who Are Repentant and Know Him. Man, as I read that book and saw his heart. I can tell you one of the things it did for me is made me want to repent more quickly. I want to run back to a God who's like that. So as we're talking about understanding our heart, these books will be important too. We're also going to link a session that Brent does really about this called How Deception Stimulates Idolatry, but it's the same thing that Brent just talked about today. So I, I encourage you to look at that. And I've mentioned gospel treason, counterfeit gods. All of those things will also be listed in our resource section. So please take a look at those. Now, come back for our next episode. Jocelyn is on her six-month hiatus. 
and we will be starting back with Alexandra, and I'm excited to hear from her. She's going to talk with us about the role of prayer in our temptations. So I hope you can join us for our next episode. Thank you. To keep from missing any future episodes, please sign up for our newsletter on our webpage, joyfuljourneypod.com. From there, you can also subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, or Spotify. You can also visit us on our Facebook page or Instagram at Joyful Journey Podcast. If you have any questions or comments for us, you can also email us at joyfuljourneyquestions at outlook.com. Joyful Journey Podcast is a ministry of Faith Bible Seminary. All proceeds go to offset costs of this podcast and toward scholarships for women to receive their MABC through Faith Bible Seminary.